I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design with a conversation that spans architecture, historic preservation, and product design with David Corey of KGBL. Let's add the tag multidisciplinary creative to this episode because that is what you are getting with David Corey. A master's degree in both architecture and historic preservation from Columbia University. And then, after years of travel and self-discovery, starts developing furniture. Now, design director at KGBL, where he has been creating for over 13 years, is one thing. The fact that this comes after a complete recreation of himself creatively makes this really interesting, and this conversation covers far more than just design. We talk about stunning American-made furnishings that speak to the need for both unique product and domestic production, modern furniture, and a story that begins by starting a company during one of the worst financial times in recent history. We'll get to that in just a moment. For well over a year now, you have been hearing incredible conversations, interviews, and panels with amazing creative talent as part of our Wellness and Design Thought Leadership series presented by Thermosol. It has been and continues to be an absolute joy working with the entire team at Thermosol from the top down. This multi-generational family business has been producing the gold standard in steam generators, saunas, steam showers, and steam shower accessories for decades. Thermosol is the original steam shower with technology that is state-of-the-art, made and manufactured in the United States. The company's history with steam showers started by David Altman in 1958. Murray Altman acquired Thermosol's steam bath division in 1989, and the company is now led by Mitch Altman from their world-class production facility in Round Rock, Texas. The most successful designers and architects are using steam showers to maximize wellness, relaxation, and enjoyment for their clients. Thermosol is a staunch advocate for the design trade, and I am so proud to have them as a presenting partner of Convo by Design and the Wellness and Design Thought Leadership Series. If not familiar with the entire range of Thermosol products, please check out thermosol.com. I will say this. I think it's fun and fantastic. There's this moment when I do these interviews where, because we haven't met before. Mm -hmm. And while I think most people have, have come to really hate Zoom and love Zoom at the same time. Yeah. For me, there's that moment where you have the, the blue button and I hit connect and then there's this introduction because we've never met before. We've never spoken before. Right, right. And I just wanted to stop and recognize that that is like, it's a pretty cool thing when you think it about it. It is. <laughs> right? Especially after Skype, which was so oh, maddening to use. I mean, this seems like a huge technological improvement of nothing else. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. So I love this. Um, and I love it too, because I always ask the question, you know, before I hit the little red button, do you have any, any questions for me? And I love it. It's like, well, I don't know what we're talking about today. So, <laughs> but yeah, I'm good. <laughs> you know what? Honestly, I usually do best when it's just kind of spur them up. When I think about it too much, I just get in my own head. So 
believe me, you'll probably, it's probably better for all of us if I don't get a chance to think about this beforehand, you know, it might be a little bit, it might be a little bit uh, truer. Yeah, no, totally love it. Um, it actually, it's funny because I want to, I want to get into the company and I want to talk about what you do. Okay. But first I have to start with the fact that, you know, I'm a native Angelino who's living in the Midwest. And it's funny because your two partners, you have one who's also a, a native Californian, and yeah. then you have someone from the Midwest. You grew up in the San Joaquin Valley yes. and you went to UC Santa Barbara before going to Columbia, where you met your yeah. business partners. Are you in New York now, or do you, do you still have, have roots in California? I mean, I I've lived in New York since I came back here to go to Columbia, but it's funny. Um, I still have family there, but like my mom lives back here now, but um, I, I will always be, I think, a Californian at heart. I was like a third generation Californian, you know, uh, I just, it still seems like it's in my DNA, you know, um, I get the New York times, California email every day, just some like weird little attempt to hold on to, you know what I mean? To hold on to my roots. But, um, it's weird because I love New York and I think I've always, I, I think I found myself when I moved to New York, I felt much more at home, if that sounds, I don't know. I, I think I'm more of a, I was a New Yorker in my soul, not really a Californian, but I still have so much affection for California because it's, you know, it's, it's you know, where I was born and where my family lived for so long, so. Listen, I, I know exactly what you mean. I too am third generation Californian, third generation Angelino, and um, I'm currently living in Tulsa, Oklahoma, working on a design house project. So in from West Coast to Midwest, it's a it's a very different thing. And I feel like that that change of experience gives you a different perspective. And speaking of you creatively, I, I don't want to get into the work yet, but I, sure. I'm interested to know you creatively. Take take me through your journey to where you are now, to founding the company with your two partners, to to getting to the place where you are now, making vibrant, incredible, unique pieces of furniture. Thank you for all those adjectives. Um, when you say the journey, do you mean the journey kind of like as as it as in design, or do you mean journey like from I mean, like from grade school, I was, I'm not quite sure how far back we want to go here. I'll tell you what, let's not go back to grade school. <laughs> okay, thank you. What, I don't want to go back there. <laughs> what, well, here's, why don't, I'll tell you what, let's do this. Why don't we start at UCSB? Why don't we start at UC Santa Barbara? Because sure. that is, in my opinion, the most beautiful college campus. It is. Anywhere in the world. It is beautiful. I mean, it's funny. I ended up there kind of by default. Um, I was, you know, I, I was going to go to, to, I think I applied to Berkeley, UCLA, and USC. And I'd actually gotten in there. And then I don't know, I, my parents had a lot of misgivings about me going there. I mean, we lived in the middle of nowhere. I mean, literally the street ended at our house. So I think they were just fearful. And somehow Santa Barbara scared them less, maybe because it was just so beautiful and I don't know, whatever. So I ended up going there, but I have to say it wasn't, I didn't enjoy my time there at all. I felt very much like it was just lots of blonde surfers and stuff. And I never felt like I just never fit in. I never felt like I fit in. So it wasn't, I don't think I experienced the way you should have experienced it, you know? Um, 
And I went there. I mean, I had always from childhood wanted to be an architect. And then I got to high school and I took mechanical drawing because that was the closest thing in high school that I could take. And I had this teacher who just basically told me that I had no talent in mechanical drawing. And I somehow extrapolated from that that I could never be an architect. And so I kind of gave it up. And I, I was an English major as an undergrad. And then I just kind of decided in my senior year, I really, it was the only thing I ever felt passionate about. So um, I got my English degree and then I just started thinking about grad school and I was like, I want to do architecture. So um, I applied to Columbia and then, you know, ended up moving, moving here. But yeah, I mean, I wish I could go back to Santa Barbara now because at the time I was just, you know, I was just like a shy farm kid. And I was just so, I was overwhelmed by everything that was, you know, I would go home every weekend because I just didn't know what to do with myself. So I was, you know, I, I totally didn't, I didn't, appreciate the moment you know i'll just say that but isn't that I'm interesting i can see that it, it, isn't it interesting because something you just said really really strikes hot with me is, is that is appreciating the moment we really don't appreciate certain moments un, until we we are so far away from them or we look yes. back at them and it's funny too cuz you start you start your company with your two partners in 2009. And it's funny because you do mention in the, in the bio on, on the, on the website that it's, it's the worst possible time to yeah. start a furniture company. I will, I will actually sort of challenge that assertion though, because one of the things that I've noticed in speaking with as many creatives as I have over the past nine years is that 2008, 2009 represents this, this moment in the industry where you had all of these creatives come into the business of design because they were forced to, they didn't know what else to do. And it, mm -hmm. it was one of those moments where it, it turned the world on its head, not dissimilar as a matter of fact, to where we are right now, but 2008, 2009 was one of those moments. Yeah. As you look back at that now, do you recognize the gravity of, of the time? And maybe it wasn't, the worst maybe it was in fact the best yeah i mean it, look back looking back at it now i, I kind of can see that because there were a lot of things then that there was more freedom in certain ways then too because because of what was happening i think maybe we just kind of like you know like you're already in the rain you might as well just get wet at a certain point so you kind of like you know you kind of have to just it, it's you pass a certain point of fear where you're just like you know what let's just see what happens because <laughs> you can't, you just, you either, you know, you either completely remove yourself from it or you just kind of go all in, you just jump in. And that's kind of, I think what we did. Um, it was really scary at the time, obviously, because the other thing, I don't know if you recall, but there was this whole thing then where people who were still extremely wealthy did not want to show their wealth. It was just in such bad taste at the time to, to be ostentatiously wealthy or buying what, you know, we're selling luxury furniture, you know, $20,000 sofas, people just, I think people, it wasn't a matter of whether they could afford it or not. It was a matter of whether they wanted to be seen spending that kind of money. So that was like a challenge at the time. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it was, you know, I mean, what did the Rothschilds say when there's blood in the street, you buy real estate. I think if those opportunities are, you know, that's when you make your move. So in retrospect, I guess maybe it wasn't a stupid thing to do, but it, at the time it felt really scary, you know? 
I mean, we signed our lease the month before the market crash. So, you know, it was just like, it was really, the timing was pretty insane. So. Do you remember the conversation? Maybe there were many, but you and your two partners, the conversation, like, what are we doing here? Do we stop? Do we go? There's that moment in time yeah. where you ha- where you have to decide. And I think it's important because we are, w- I think we're beyond that moment in time right now in, in this current scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to talk to you a little bit more about materials and product and design and moving mm-hmm. forward with that. But do you, I'm curious, do you remember the conversation that you must have had, at least the first one, that moment in time where you said, yeah. you know what, foot is off the brake and on the gas and it's hitting the floorboard and we're going. Yeah, we, we actually had a discussion about, we were, it was like the day before we were going to sign the lease and we were, things were so, things were happening that were just really, you know, the omens were all there. And we were like, should we not sign the lease? And we talked about it for a while and they were like, no, let's just do it. And somehow you think in your mind, okay, this will get solved. I mean, it was so, it was such a, nothing that had ever happened in our lifetimes. We just couldn't imagine that it could be as bad as people were saying it was going to be just because it just, you know, okay, it's another recession, whatever. New York is the first hit, the first to come out of it always. So there'll be a little rough period and then we'll come out of it. And then, you know, but we did definitely have that discussion but we were so committed in every way at that point, emotionally too, that we, I don't think any of us could bear, it was two and a half years in planning. I don't think any of us could just bear walking away from it at that point. It, everyone was just, you just, you're so emotionally committed, you know? So we just kind of like girded our loins and, and went for it, you know? You're listening to my conversation with KGBL design director, David Corey. We'll be right back. If you've been listening to Convo by Design for a while now, you have heard me tell you about Article. Great style. Really, it's as simple as that with Article. Things have been challenging for design professionals and their clients for, what, two years, two plus years now? You know this already. What you might not know is that it doesn't have to be if you're looking for exceptionally beautiful modern furniture. Article provides a simple and easy way to creating a beautiful modern space because Article works direct with their manufacturers on production of unique and stunning pieces. Then they work directly by providing this well-crafted design directly to you. This direct relationship means you aren't wondering where your furniture is and you're getting it for an incredible value. What could possibly be better than that? In many cases, the shipping is flat rate, which means no surprises right? Even more, their culture and service are rooted in their core values. Customer obsession, doing it differently, ownership mindset, winning together. If you're a designer, architect, or residential developer, you must check out their trade program. Discounts, special support, and exclusive perks. Article has the beautiful modern furniture you're looking for at an incredible price, at an incredible value, and you need to check them out. Check out article.com, or if you go to the show notes, there is a specific link which will take you, if you're in the trade, directly to their trade program. You have to see it to really believe it. Thank you, Article. Were you able to draw from from that experience in the last two years for this experience? Well, this has been so different because it's odd, like um, the pandemic you know, it was like, I mean, our clientele didn't seem to be terribly affected by this. 
In fact, because most of our, this is really, most of our furniture is residential um, because of the price point, also because it's, there's so much customization and like it's so each piece is kind of a special piece that it didn't affect us in a huge way. I mean, it definitely affected us, but not nearly as much as like the 2008, 2009 thing. It was, it was a little bit more like, okay, what's going on here? People still seem to be ordering. Um, I mean, there were some months that were a little bit dicey, but it was a different experience because in spite of everything, people seem to still be wanting to, to do this. In fact, you know, there's a, that, there's a lot of talk about how everyone kind of looked at their houses when they were stuck there for months and decided they wanted to improve things. I think that we might've benefited a bit from that because that, I mean, there was definitely a lot of renovation going on just from designers we worked with, people just decided they needed to, you know, they needed to do something in their own space and they weren't economically affected that much and they were able to do it. So yeah, it was a very different experience. Shifting gears to the creative side and the design side, how how have you, over the time that you've been doing this, sort of you know you have this this philosophy of unless you know something is new, we're not adding it to the collection, right? With the materials and with the colors and with the with the the style in which you design, mm-hmm. how has that grown? Over the, over the years that you've been the company that you are. And I say that specifically because, you know, in watching the industry change right now, it's so fascinating. The ideas of traditional, eclectic, collected, modern, modern mix, high-low mix, you know, we... Yeah. It's, it's funny because anyone who's been in design for a while has had that phase of going to design events where everyone complains about millennials. Do you remember that? Like, yeah, how do we, yeah, yeah. How do we reach millennials? What are they doing? Yeah. What are, what yeah. are they doing? <laughs> and it, it turned out that there was this sort of idea that millennials had started as it relates to design and collecting many other things where they can't afford a whole house because whether they live in their parents' basement or a, or a 400 square foot apartment, right. so they'll get one thing, right? Yeah. And then they'll, they'll surround that with other things to complement. I think that was fascinating, but I think it also fundamentally changed the manner in which people look at design. And I'm interested, I, and I say that because we're in a renaissance of design right now. I, I, I feel that, I genuinely feel that. And you, I, I think you must feel that as well. How does, where we are now in the, in the, in the history and, and the place where, where we are in design, how does that affect the manner in which you design and you craft and you create? Well, I mean, I've always thought that it's kind of impossible to know really what your influences are because I think you're constantly taking in and you're translating it and then it's coming out, you know? So the whole idea of, I think we all borrow from everything constantly, even though you're hopefully, you know what I mean? You're transmuting it somehow when it, when it, when it comes out on paper. But I think for me, I honestly try not to think about that too much because I don't like, I, I don't like when people say, oh, your stuff looks very, and then they name it with something. Because I feel, I, I don't know, maybe this is just my own personal, you know, problem but I, I always feel like it kind of demeans something when you start labeling it and like I don't want it to be labeled I just want it to be good design you know what I mean that's all I really care about 
I don't, I mean, I don't really care if you think it looks modern or you think it looks retro or you think it looks this. I mean, is it good? And that's really the only thing that I, I want to get to. And I, I guess for me, it's always just about like the highest compliment someone could pay me would be to say that this piece looks like it's been edited enough where there's nothing that you want to take away or, or, or add to it. I mean, that's always to me like the, 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 the magic key of designing is editing and knowing like which ideas to use when. And that's really all I focus on is I try to, I try to focus on one idea and then try to, to give the clearest view of that idea when I'm done with this piece. And I mean, that's, you know, I, I find that really hard to do. And I'm not saying that I'm successful at it, you know, even most of the time, but I do think that's like, that's my only goal. You know, I mean, I think if you start like with the most archetypal version of something and then try to what, you know, try to find the essence of that thing, whether it's a chair or a table, whatever, and then, you know, just work from that point. I, that's always what's worked for me. So I don't know. I probably just didn't answer your question. I just went off on a weird tangent, didn't I? So. <laughs> I, I, I love that. Let me give the, let me give the question a, yes. a little bit of historical background. Okay. When I started doing the show, I would ask designers or architects, so what is your, what is your, what is your style? Right. What is your yeah. what is your stuff? And I've I came to learn over the years that and I've told this story so many times that those who are listening to the podcast right now, I can I can hear your eye rolling because I've told this story so many times. But it's true. Um, yeah, exactly. That designers, good designers, great creatives don't necessarily have a style because they're pliable, adaptable. They can, they can change yes. based on the circumstances and situations. At the same time, you can always recognize certain through lines. You know, Bunny Williams said that she would like to, you know, when someone looks at her design, they would like them not to know that it was her. And I challenged her when we spoke about this. I said, you know, I get that and I, I understand, but at the same time, great creatives have certain through lines. They have, call it a fingerprint. Yeah, that yeah. you will be able to see in their work. It can look completely different, but there will be certain elements that yes, will, will always be consistent over time. And that's kind of like rings in a tree. That's what makes it so special. Yes. And so you have, as, as the creator and designer of fine things, I would think that a lot of the things that you do will have some of those through lines but you still get to change and craft your product over time. And so I think, you know, the basis for the question too is when you don't have all of the raw materials that you want, that you become traditionally used to using mm -hmm. in your design process, it forces you to change. Sometimes it's good. I've spoken to people who've said, you know what, I just can't do this because I don't have what I need. And yeah. others who said, you know what, I don't have what I need. So I'm completely changing and I'm going to see what happens. And some of the yeah. stuff they're happy with, some of the stuff they're miserable with, but ultimately it forces you to expand your, 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 yes. your boundaries. I'm curious how this has affected you and your design work. Well, I think, you know, you're, you know, like having parameters, I think is always essential to me. Like I, to me, the, a nightmare is just, just design something, 
You know what I mean? Like I want, I want parameters because there's, you know, otherwise it's just, it has no form. Right. So I, I agree. Like I, I like being challenged in that way. Uh, like if someone say, you know, design a piece that's going to cost $500 to make or something like that. Like, I think those, I mean, those are really difficult challenges, but I do, I embrace those kinds of challenges because you, you always grow from that experience. You know, if you're only, if you only get to do what you like doing, you're not growing. You're just, you know, I, there's, there's, yeah, there, it's not exciting either. Cause I think what, you know, you were saying earlier, like you always have to be evolving. Um, like your style has to evolve. If, if it's just static throughout your entire career, I, I think you're just going to become a joke. It's a certain point, you know, um, or wait for like, wait to die. So people can, you know, start collecting yourself. I don't know, but, you know, I do think that, that having those parameters is essential. And so I always want that. I want somebody to tell me what the rules are. And then I try to design within those rules because that's when you come up with your best ideas. Design is so personal. The experience of design, it's, being able to do a sit test, being able yes. to actually put your hands on the fabric, on the yes. material and, and give it a, give it a good once over to feel it and to sit in it and to snuggle in. And that is something that we have been desperately missing. How does, how has that affected the business? And what have you, what have you learned by that? As far as moving forward, when we get to do events in the future and people are back in person, has that changed the manner in, in which you present product? I mean, I had kind of a, I had kind of an epiphany, like after we did our first line where I was designing a lot of pieces that were just not comfortable and people weren't buying them because they thought they were beautiful, but they weren't comfortable. So I had to kind of like, you know, put on my big boy pants and realize that, okay, if you actually want to sell this furniture, instead of just looking at a pretty picture of it, you have to make this, you have to, in my eyes, compromise, right? Um, I don't see it that way anymore because I kind of realized that that wasn't really what it was about. It wasn't just about, you know, they always say like architects make the worst furniture because like all the Frank Lloyd Wright furniture, it's just, I mean, it's beautiful, but God, you can't sit on it. It tips over. It's just like, it's so impractical, but it's cool. And I was so stuck in that mode. But it's like, okay, you have to have a feather down cushion on this because people really want it to be comfortable. You can't have this really hard square foam cushion because it looks cool. So I had a lot of lessons to learn. And um, I also learned how difficult it is to really get something to be universally comfortable, you know, because you kind of have to go like a couple comes in and he's six foot six and she's five foot two. And this thing has to be comfortable for everybody. And it's like, that was a hard lesson I had to learn, but I honestly think anyone who learns it is a better designer afterwards because, you know, it's like form without function is, you know, meaningless at a certain point. That being said, and it's, it's interesting too, because you have, you have a further challenge in the, in the, the idea of modern yes. means sleek. In most cases, yes. it means minimal. <laughs> and speaking to what you just said, you know, it's, it's one thing to create a sofa where you can overstuff it and just keep piling pillows in, right? <laughs> then, right. then, you know, universality is, is easy. Yeah. With what you do, it's not. Where are the lines? Where are the boundaries? Where's the <laughs> philosophy? 
I mean, you know, it's like I think one I did one piece that I thought was was a was a turning point for me. It was a, an upholstered chair where the frame was incredibly hard edged and it was a metal and upholstered frame. But then the cushions were the absolute opposite of that. They were these really mushy feather down cushions. And like, I found a lot of pleasure in the juxtaposition of those two things. And I kind of used that as a way to, you know, it was kind of like, I love seeing juxtapositions of anything of the old and new, you know, whatever, colorful and colorless, things like that. So I, that was something that I really learned a lesson where I was actually expressing the, the modernity and the sleekness of the piece more by introducing this part of it that was the opposite of that, if that makes any sense. It, it kind of like, you know, you can't, you know, if everything in a, in a room is, is colored, then, then a white piece becomes colored, right? If, every, if, you know, if that's the only thing in the room that isn't a color, then, so it's like, kind of like that, like you can see the modernity of this piece by comparing it to the comfort of these cushions. So that was kind of a, a, learning, a learning lesson for me that I, I really have, you know, taken to heart, I guess. And that's just one example, but it's the kind of thing that you really need to evolve as a designer, like I said, if you want to actually sell your furniture. With the piece you mentioned, what, what got you there? Was there an aha moment? Um, I, I think it was like everyone kept telling me, like, David, quit making these pieces that are just hard as a rock. And that like, and I was like really fighting it. And I was, you know, I just don't understand it because I will convince myself if I like the way something looks, I will convince myself it's comfortable. I don't care if it's like nails. I'll be like, it's comfortable because I like the way it looks, but nobody else think, very few people think like that. So I was like, I had to give that up. And then I just was like, I just was like, I'm not gonna let this get the better of me. I'm gonna figure this out. And that was the way I figured it out. I just decided like, I'm gonna do this piece. that's like two polar opposites in the same piece. And you know what, it's been a really popular piece, I have to say. And I think it allows people who like modern forms, but also, you know, like you also, you know, you have designers, then you have their clients. And the designers are always willing to embrace really, you know, beautiful objects that may not be super practical, but their clients, it's their money and they want comfortable furniture. And so, you know, it was kind of a way to give each of them something like you gave a designer this beautiful architectural frame and then you gave their client these like super comfortable cushions and like it was like everybody's happy. So I don't know. I mean, it was uh, it's it, it kind of worked. So I've tried to use that, you know, since then as a way of navigating this this issue. Speaking of navigation, it's it's also very interesting to me you know, being a, a native Angelino and starting the podcast for the first, you know, six, seven years, I was very much Southern California focused with the occasional New York, Boston, Texas guest. Um, and there were very interesting ideas about, about fluidity and design. You know, New York is sleek, sophisticated and much more hard edged. California is is much more, you know, outside in, woo woo. Let's, you know, yeah. how is this going to benefit my soul? You know, right. you, have to, you, have, you have to you have to find comfort for someone's soul as well as their physical being. Yeah, that's a big ask. Right. And then you get into into Texas and I started to realize, you know, having lived in Dallas too, 
there is a difference between this desire to push boundaries in Dallas and desire to preserve history in Houston. You know, there is, there's a, it's a very interesting dynamic. And as I continue to travel the country and, you know, now being based in the Midwest, there is this idea that traditional needs to remain because that's what we know. And there's, I don't know if it's because, you know, as I look at your showrooms and where you guys, where, where you show, you show in Chicago and Dallas, Los Angeles, New York, and Toronto. And there are these, what I call the flyover states, you know, anywhere in between that you won't find designers in AD or, or any of the other publications. Do you, do you think about the flyover states in your design? Does it challenge you? Does it, does it confound you? Does it make you wonder, you know, what do these people want, especially when there's no Oklahoma City, Tulsa, Oklahoma, there is no design center here. There is no, the closest is Dallas. That's four and a half hours away. Then you go to Chicago, that's 13 hours away by car. Do you think about that? I mean, I guess I don't think about it, but I don't, I don't mean that that sounds kind of, I don't mean to, to say I don't think about it in a, I'm a New Yorker, so I don't think about it way. I don't think about it in that I don't necessarily feel like in any part of the country that you don't have people who want, I mean, New York surprisingly is, there are a lot of very conservative people here. Um, I, I was kind of shocked at how conservative New York is when it comes to design. A lot of clients just want, you know, they want something that's like a really traditional apartment. It's, there are a lot of people like that. And I think that's, I think in Oklahoma city, I've only been to Oklahoma City a couple of times, but I was shocked. Like I remember going to a couple of houses that were these super modern, beautiful houses. So I don't know if there are any rules. I think in every city you have a population of people who are really, you know, are embrace the new. And then you have people who are just super traditional. And I, I, I guess I don't want to think that it's necessarily like where you are geographically in the country. I just think it's how much you care to educate yourself about design or how much interest you have in design. I mean, I'm sure there are amazing designers in Oklahoma City. Do they get the amount of clients coming to them who want to do something that maybe a New York client would want to do? I, I'm sure not. But, you know, I, I, guess I, I guess I always imagine that there are those people everywhere. It's just, you know, it's just probably a harder gig where they are, that's all. But... <laughs> Yeah, you know, and I, I bring this up because I find it really interesting now. I think we are, and it, it's funny, when, it, when I say this, and I've said this before, and it, it's not as, we're very, we're fractured as a company, yeah. as a country. Yes. We're, we're incredibly yes. fractured. And yeah. I don't just mean that politically, ideologically. I mean, creatively. And it's really interesting because one of the things that I noticed when I, when I got to Tulsa the very first time, David, I was stunned by Tulsa. The, the art deco architecture and oh, design. Goth. Here, yeah. It is phenomenal. Yes. It yes. is. And then when you look at the city and you realize that the city was crafted in the early 1900s by oil men from New York who were <laughs> trying to make a mini Manhattan. Wow. I didn't know that in the middle of Oklahoma. And then you go back and you look at the architecture and the design. It's really, it's really interesting. So 
I, I, and then in my travels around, you know, Bentonville, Arkansas, you know, St. Louis, yeah. Kansas City, up to Chicago. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating to me that the, the different ideas of architecture and design, and you can tell by what's been saved and what hasn't, you know, right. and I, and I, I go back to one of the original ideas that you and I had, had already sort of discussed in this idea of, of a renaissance in design and architecture. And I feel like because there haven't been the same opportunities to go into showrooms and it's forced everyone online and that online discovery has has been explosive for the design now that being said are you still let's see we're recording this at the you know end of january beginning of february in 2022 are you still having trouble securing raw materials and getting things out yes yes i mean definitely it's everything's delayed you know I mean, one of the materials we use quite a bit is silicon bronze, which um, is in probably half the pieces we make. We waited six months for an order to come in from overseas. So that, that would never have happened before. Um, and then just shipping anything, just getting anything created, everything is just bringing in stone from overseas. Everything has become, yeah, it's really elongated. The only positive is that because it's happening all over, clients are understanding because they know that you're not just making up an excuse. This is real. So it's the only thing is that everyone's in the same boat, but yeah, it's definitely impacted us. Yeah. It's really interesting. So I'm working on this design house in Tulsa and in for many things that were ordered back in October, and yeah. just got notification that they're going to be shipped uh, beginning of next month. Oh yeah, the the timeline has just been completely blown up. Yeah, but I wonder, does that have you looking internally? And I mean, as a country, does that have you looking back at the U.S. for manufacturing? Is that possible? I mean, I don't. I mean, you know, we're kind of a rare case in that everything we do, we do locally because that's part of our business model where we make everything in Brooklyn. And, you know, of course, that's not true of the materials. I, I don't, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I hate to say this, but I feel like that's kind of a, I feel like that, that ship has sailed for the U.S. It's just, I think it's just a natural part of evolving into a more modern economy that you're not going to be making as much and you're going to be getting raw materials. I mean, it's just kind of what happens. You know, we're coming a certain more and more service economy. I feel like it, it's great. The idea of that is great, but I just don't see that really happening. Um, and I'm certainly no economist. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I might be wrong. I just, I feel like it's just something that you have to let go and just realize that this is the way it is going forward. You know, you're going to be getting most of your stuff from overseas or from, you know, wherever. And then, you know, just the idea that we're still making things here, people find that to be an anomaly, that we're making things locally. People are shocked. It's always the first question people ask when they come in the showroom or, or we go to a show, where do you make this? It's the first question. And when we say we make it in Brooklyn, they love that because they're just assuming you're not making it in this country. So, yeah, I, I mean, everyone kind of embraces the idea of that, but I think the reality is just so different. So design in Brooklyn, outsourced for raw materials, assembled in Brooklyn. Yeah, I mean, some raw materials we get here, just there's certain raw materials, like say silicone bronze, 
is it made in this country? It's made, I believe, in Brazil. Um, don't quote me on that, but I, I mean, it's that seems to be where it's manufactured. So there, it's not a very common um, metal. So yeah. it's uh, that's where it comes from, and that's the only place that I know that it comes from, as, as far as I know. When it when it comes to, and it's it's interesting because we're in this. One of the things I love doing about this this show is. I love talking about the business and and adding a timestamp to it because I am it's amazing if you go back and listen to episodes from 2014 15 16 17 just seeing how how the business has so dramatically changed yeah. and, and we're in one of those big change moments right now yeah with events it's funny cuz now we're in this on again off again event series where, yeah, we're going, no, we're not going. Yeah. <laughs> are, are you back to showing at live events or are live events on the calendar for 2022? It's funny, we've, we've tried to do that and the last two live events that we signed up for got canceled. Um, the Architectural Digest show, uh, which is now called the Luxury Furniture Show, um, that was set for last September, you know, a couple of weeks before they canceled the show partially because um, overseas exhibitors couldn't get their stuff here and partially because people were afraid of COVID. Then there was another show called um, the, the Paris show that was gonna happen in January that we were gonna participate in. And then, um, I mean, I don't know if the show was canceled but pretty much it, just getting there ended up being almost impossible. Um, so that got canceled and it ended up being kind of a local version of the show, just kind of some of the people who were gonna go there did some local events, but it's been, we were kind of up for it because it's been two years of very, very little traffic in the showroom and just everything virtual, you know, everyone's just dying to get out and be around people, but it just doesn't seem like it's gonna happen yet. I, I don't know, every time I think it's gonna happen, you know, I mean, we all know it's just something, you know, Omicron, you know, it's, it's, it's just, God, I just don't, you know, all bets are off, but yeah, I don't even know if there are any shows planned right now in New York, because I think everyone's just waiting to see what happens. Yeah. And in the absence of being able to do these live events, you know, there is such high demand. I think that there's been, you know, it's sort of offset but it'll be interesting because when we get to the point where supply catches up with demand as yeah. much as can be expected at this point, and hopefully people will be traveling again to go to these events. I just think we're, you know, from the digital side of, of marketing design business, your website, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it as, as we speak, your website does, and, and for those listening, I would encourage you to go check it out. It's, it's kgblnyc.com. And you can also um, go check out the link in the show notes where you can click directly to it. Your website is, is visually stunning. It's really well done. Oh, thank you. And I think it shows the product well. And I think traditionally the design business has fought that urge they want to make the website look like the catalog right mm -hmm. as much as possible just because if you're going to do the work and pay for the creative on the on the catalog mm -hmm. side you might as well just have multiple uses for it but you can't really do that anymore and 
I'm interested to know how you view the the future of showing your materials. Like I mentioned, you know, in five five cities where you're you're showing in in showrooms, mm-hmm. there is we're getting to the place in time where the digital capacity for design business has grown so significantly that many businesses are are going to be forced to look at that as as sort of a virtual showroom. I had a conversation yesterday. Uh, I had the first conversation, meaningful conversation about a a showroom, a digital showroom in the metaverse, which I don't think we're that far away from. I mean, the idea of being able to to take a sit test digitally and virtually is kind of exciting. Is that on your radar yet? This is the this is the weird thing about um, about our product. We've always had, you know, we've we've always tried to make our website as like sexy as we could. Um, it was actually one of our partners, Roberto Guzman, is the one who did the website. And our mantra for the website: we want the dumbest website we can have. Meaning that I'm so tired of going to websites that want to tell me about their lifestyle and there's music and it's like, where is the furniture? Like you can't find anything because it's so much about telling you what their brand is. And we wanted one that was just please look at our furniture. Here's some really nice images of our furniture. And, you know, that was kind of like, that was it. We wanted a simple, simple website. The other thing is we found that at this part of the market, you know, no one buys it with very rare exception. No one buys this stuff without seeing it in person at some point. And usually it's several trips. It's like the designer comes in, looks at it. The designer comes back with the wife. Then the designer comes back with the husband and the wife. Then the designer comes back on them on their own again. It's such a process to buy it because it's, you know, it's a function of cost and it's also a function of um, custom customization where once they realize they can do different things, they start to really like, do I want to make this a half an inch longer? Do I want to, you know, there's a lot of decisions to be made and it seems like people really, really need to see it in person. And also I think as good as the stuff looks on the site, I really don't think that anything can compare to seeing it in person because the quality is insane on our stuff. Like all of our metals are solid metals. Everything's really heavy, which I don't know if that's a plus, but I mean, everything is so solidly built and the details are so flawless on everything. Like the back of every piece is completely finished. Um, just things like that, that people need to experience. So we kind of, there, I mean, the, obviously the, the website is, a, is an amazing tool for us, but in the end, we want people to experience this. You know, we want, we want them to touch it and to, to see it in person. So I, I think it's, it's, I just don't know to what point we'd ever be able to, or maybe even want to have it, you know, just totally online. Something to think about. Yeah, definitely, definitely. <laughs> and, and, and by the way, that, that is the reason why I love having these conversations because um, we, are, we are in the middle of, of an exciting time. Isn't it interesting too that you find yourself in the middle of interesting, challenging turmoil and you never really seem to appreciate it until you're through and on the other oh, side? God, yeah, yeah. Also, you know, when you get after you go through a really difficult period in however you experience it in your life, 
while you're going through it, you're, you're so good at telling yourself it's not that bad. Only when you're done with it, can you admit, God, that was horrible. <laughs> but thank God I couldn't, I couldn't admit that to myself when it was happening because I probably would have just given up, you know, so. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. Um, David, I am incredibly thankful for the time we spent today. Uh, I really appreciate oh, thank it. Thank you, Josh. We are living in a time of incredible growth both technologically and creatively, with respect to interior design, exterior design, and architecture. There is no question. There are companies thinking differently about the business of design and how to make products super serve those for whom they're being made. One of those companies, and one of my favorites, is Moya Living, designer and fabricators of some of the most stunningly beautiful, incredibly durable, and highly functional kitchen bath, and outdoor kitchen cabinetry on the market today. Powder-coated steel with stunning lines, vibrant colors to fit any design style or aesthetic. A history of designing cabinetry for the scientific community. So you know it's been tested in some of the truly the most harsh conditions available. Moya O'Neill is the CEO and founder of Moya Living. She's the inspiration behind the design. Designers, their specification process is so simple. It will make your job so much easier. Check them out online through the socials at Moya Living, their website, moyaliving.com, and in the real world, their live kitchen showroom in Fountain Valley, California. Thank you, David. I so appreciate the time, and I am a huge fan of your work. The story is also amazing. Thank you, Thermosol, Article, York Wall Coverings, Franz Wigner, and Moya Living for your partnership and support. You are remarkable partners and amazing allies for the trade. And thank you for listening. Remember why you do what you do and that the business of design is all about making better the lives of those we serve. Just a reminder, if you loved this episode, which I hope that you did, you can get many, many more. If you subscribe to the show, you're getting all the new episodes, but did you know that there is a back catalog on the podcast platform that you're listening to this on right now that has literally hundreds of other episodes that you may not have heard, so check them out. Until next week, be well, and take today first. Mm -hmm.